0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz bassist, composer, and arranger Leon Lee Dorsey. We caught up with him to discuss his latest 2021 CD, Thank You, Mr. Mayburn, A Long Life of Music and the Future. He made a solo recital debut at the Lincoln Center in September 1999 and moved on in a big way to play with jazz luminaries like Dizzy Gillespie, Wynton Marsalis, Freddie Hubbard, John Lewis, Kenny Clark, John Hendricks, and on and on. Along with a busy performing and recording existence, he teaches these days at the Berklee College of Music, and he is a very self-actualized cat. Enjoy his story.
1: How you doing? Hey, hey, good, man. Thanks for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Oh, not a problem whatsoever. My pleasure.
2: Let's start off
1: with your latest uh,
2: 2021 CD. Thank you, Mr. Mayburn. And I think before we get into Harold and kind of the construction of this album, it comes out during a global pandemic. Talk to me a little bit about the timing and maybe the need for music now more than ever.
1: Human beings are made to interact, obviously. You know, we need love, affection, acknowledgement, and all of that. You know, it's just kind of happenstance we did the record. I mean, obviously, you never know when any of us are going to go, whatever. And originally, I was going to release that record closer to the time we recorded it, but it was so close, you know, Harold passed late September. We had only recorded it two months earlier. I had just resumed going back to Berkeley. And, matter of fact, Mike actually called me from Japan, texted me from Japan and said, hey, did you hear, you know, like it's in 3 o'clock in the morning or something. And at first I was like, oh, maybe I should, you know, kind of rush and get it out because I was planning on hopefully that late fall, you know, maybe winter or something. And then I said, wow, you know, I was so emotionally getting over it that I just like, you know what, it's not, let me just take my time, we'll mix it, we'll think about the liner notes and, you know, just the whole logistics and everything. So I kind of just didn't put it on the back burner, but um, we had just released this month Time record with Greg Scaff. It had only been out a few months, you know. Um, and I just said, you know, I'm just going to sit on it, wait, and then we did this other project with Michael Wolf, uh, where we did the Sergeant Pepper. And it seemed like it was almost getting put on the back burner. And then I was like, well, which one should I release first? The Pepper? And we said, okay, let's just release, you know, now we're right in the middle of the pandemic. And we said, well, you know, the Pepper is going to, that's a very feel good kind of record. Obviously, I get by with a lot friends, you know, kind of germane to the situation. And then I just said, you know what? I'm going to shoot for, if not late 2020, probably right at the beginning of the year after talking to Mark Rini and those guys. And he said, oh, you know what? It's a very good time to do it. And, um, we, um you know, we mixed it and then kind of thought about it. Kind of, had, you know, artwork. And then we got Bill Michalski, uh Clark had recommended Bill, who I knew very well, to do the liner notes. And he just, you know, was right on. And we just said, okay, it's going to be January, you know. And, you know, we gave Lydia and... um Lady Liebman grew, you know, the kind of eight, 12-week window that they wanted, which is kind of standard, you know, slightly adjusted, obviously, for our current situation. Uh, so that's kind of how it got put in that kind of time zone.
2: Talk to me about your relationship
1: with the great Harold Mayburn and why this album was, you know,
2: specifically constructed for him,
1: kind of how it all came about. You know, when I got to New York, I've seen Harold many, many times. You know, over the years, you know, particularly, you know, a long, long-standing association with George Coleman, and uh, would see them at the Vanguard, the Village Gate, and you know, um, Harold would play at Bradleys and all. This is going back. And then a few years ago, um, I started doing a lot of playing and projects with George Coleman Jr., and he called me to do some of the Octet, which was a great band. You know, his father was kind of taking a little bit of backseat, letting George Jr. kind of take their role as leader, you know, Eric Alexander, Gary Somalian, Jeremy Pelt, and uh, Alexander McCabe, and it was a great band and all, you know, um, and uh Adam Brenner, and, you know, we played at the Standard quite a bit, and then there was also quartet jobs out of town with uh just a quartet with George Jr., Harold, and myself along with you know, the great George Coleman. So, you know, in the last, say, seven, eight, nine years, decade or so, got a lot of opportunity to play with Harold. Had been kicking, and he had also recorded at my studio um with a, a singer, a young lady. And it had been swirling in my mind, but I wasn't sure how to execute it, you know. And then I started doing gigs and projects with Mike Clark, and I go like, wow, it'd be amazing to be able to get both guys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> on one yeah. record. I go like, well, okay, so you better go take some Houdini lessons, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, um so I was gigging and recording more and more with Mike Clark. And then, you know, at the time, Harold, you know, still was very busy in 2019, just touring and working around town. And I shot a couple of dates by him. He's like, no, that's not so good. And I kind of got, you know, pinned him down. You know, I said, you know, I said let me follow up and just try to nail out a date. And uh and we finally did. Um and uh it just kinda came together. Then I kinda thought about the repertoire a little bit, kinda looked at some of Harold's past um releases and uh which is why we put Reagan and Scraping on there, which is kind of a no brainer. Um obviously Mike coming from the Bay Area, all the Herbie Hancock headhunters, all the history playing R and B and Blues and Fat Bag and straight ahead i knew that he could put something on tunes like watermelon man and walking that probably nobody else in the planet could do you know so i was really and even when i ran it by him he's like oh you know what i'm gonna i'm a you know he you know musicians are typically oh i'm going to think about it work on it and you know we just kind of had the date kind of talked everything down I had the repertoire kind of listed i i think other than maybe bye bye blackbird Maybe one other thing. I don't even think there were two takes on anything. It was just one take, you know. <laughs> uh, you know what, when you have Harold Mayburn and Mike Clark, you can kind of get away with that.
2: Well, let's go back to some of the early years of your life. Go back to that solo recital, Lincoln Center, in September of 1999. What was going through your mind? Ah, oh, man, you know,
1: nerves. <laughs> uh, I was actually part of my – I was actually – uh at the Graduate Center of City University of New York and I was actually working on my doctorate. So it was kind of a um kind of a twofold kind of situation. Um and um had opportunity, got invited to do a concert there and I had already done a couple of recitals and so I really you know it was like mainly twentieth century. The previous one I had done like Bach and all this kind of traditional repertoire for the double bass. And the one in Merkin, you know, it was kind of more the in, uh, interpretation series, um, was by Tom Brugner, who oversaw, was a curator and all. It was pretty much a new music, and I had been looking at a lot of music, and at the time I was studying with Ron Carter, and we kind of talked about some different things, and knew of a handful of the composers, um, and, uh, you know, kind of went, you know, as, as you can imagine, was a tremendous amount of new music from the let's say 1950s to the end of the 20th century you know some good some not so good <laughs> uh you know and uh, but i wanted to get you know so some of the pieces are kind of like neo romantic some are you know a little bit more abstract in nature um one was um uh by a composer of the Juilliard factory, faculty um and all, so I tried to have a mixture, and one actually had poetry in it um um pablo Neruda, uh Naruda, which was this piece by the great Bertram Suresky, actually had reading in it, and uh actually found tracked down the poet David Henderson, who was in New York, so it was kind of a lot of involvement. Um, and though it was really all classical, I actually had the great Jerry Allen and Cecil Brooks III, uh, accompany me on just two jazz things. I kind of just slid them in at the end, you know, um, but, but 80% of the concert was all, um, solo bass, bass and piano, bass and percussion kind of mixture of, of that. But I enjoy, I'm actually releasing a classical record this year and, um, working with a young composer, Taylor Ackley. And uh hopefully we're about 60% through it, and just kind of mixing it and trying to figure out the last couple of pieces. So that's part of my history that people kind of know me, know, uh, you know, um, since I, when I first got to New York, I was doing a lot of chamber music uh and touring your playing jazz and chamber music and then, you know, time constrictions for orchestra playing where you kind of have to be in town and have to be available to rehearse all the time. But I kind of kept up a lot of my solo playing um, for most of that time. Obviously, since that time, your
2: career has worked out pretty well. You've been able to share the stage with Dizzy Gillespie, Wentmore Solace. I mean, I can go down the list. Freddie Hubbard, George Benson. My question to you is this. What did you learn from these legends and these, amazing musicians that in turn you are teaching kids at Berkeley or that get on the bandstand with you? What did, what did they give you that you've made your own to give to them? Well, I was very
1: fortunate. Um, and When I was in junior high, I was actually a cello major. Uh, I was playing cello, rather. So there was this Talbeat magazine, right? And um, I guess, you know, there's always music magazines sitting around the music room. You know, I'm talking 7th 8th grade. So I see this picture, and there are these two very, very cool-looking guys, right? I mean, they got oh. on the shades. They're holding a bass. And it was Richard Davis and Ron Carter. It was an article on both of them. And, I was, and this is just shows you how crazy. I'm probably, you know, 12, 13 years old, right? I did my master's with Richard at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the, the majority of my doctorate with uh, Ron Carter. I mean, so... You know, I don't know how those, you know, how things line up or anything else. Um, but, uh, so for me, I've been very fortunate. You know, Pittsburgh is obviously had a great music teacher, Mr. Howard, from like third grade to pretty much, uh, um, um, you know, end of elementary and then a great junior high and high school. Kind of did what a lot of people do, you know, also the orchestra playing and rock and blues bands and all. But when I got to Oberlin, um, Wendell Logan was my first mentor, who w- was much better known as a composer, but one of the things about, like, Richard Davis and Ron, obviously, they're on thousands of records, Iconic, some of the most greatest records in jazz and otherwise, so just the whole thing about the commitment, which is what I try to tell the kids about, I always leave my kids with two messages, and that's to uh dream big and be great, right? So when I'm playing Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Duke Ellington, Prince, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Art Blakey and Jazz Messengers, I'm telling them, you know, the sky's the limit um, and that, uh, you know, there's nothing you're not capable of doing if you commit. And that's really the commitment part and the hard work with, you know, the Art Blakeys and all these people. You can talk about natural talent all you want, like, you know, they talk about with sports, but everybody knows that athletes in the gym, you know, six hours a day. So the music, I, I think of it in that way. Just the idea of the discipline and the hard work and the commitment is, you know, you just, they all exhibit it in a slightly different way, but, you know, and, but, you know, their work speak for themselves. What was the first
2: live jazz show you saw that really
1: made you think, man, I want to do that with my life? Now, that's a very good question. Because in Pittsburgh, you know, Roger Humphreys, who's on Song for My Father, played with Horace, and uh, Joe, great Joe Harris, who played with Dizzy Gillespie and Quincy Jones. I'd have to really think about that one because it was so much jazz and so much jazz history in Pittsburgh um, that it's probably somewhere in elementary school, or junior high, possibly. I mean, I you know, saw a lot of um, music growing up, so it's hard for me to say which concert because it was so such a continuous flow between studying piano from second or third grade and you know then playing outside bands and all. You know, you see, you know, pop, R and B, rock and roll bands or whatever. You go like, well, you know, y'all every every kid dreams they can sing or do that. <laughs> you know, to some varying degree, you know
2: if you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger self based on all these years and the wisdom that you've accumulated, and you can give your younger self maybe before that recital or even before that, a piece of advice based on what you've learned throughout all these years, what would, what would that be? Wow.
1: Um, More practice time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't, you know, less hanging, more practice, you know, uh, I always tell my students, I said, you've grown up in a digital age. I said, and I had, it was so important, I wrote it down. But I said, you know, I don't care if you're the greatest guitar player, most in love with music that ever walks through Berkeley. I said, the most important thing will be time management and how you manage distractions. And I, and I put Mozart on the board and Miles. And I go, like, the majority of their lives and their attention were to their musical goals and vision, right? So, time management and just you know the discipline to execute that is like to me the most critical components. And you know, Ron Carter obviously and Richard Davis say, uh, you know, they just that's like in every fiber of their being, so to speak. You know, so I would definitely just say, you know, just commit even at a higher level in terms of just like you know if you feel this is what you want to do and all
2: we're all going to get back to some version of live music and things are going to start returning and when we do how do you hope not only the world of music but the world of jazz more specifically how, how do you hope we evolve stronger out of all of this things that we've had to do to adapt to cultivate ourselves to survive during this time what do you hope become strengths for the world as we reemerge?
1: Well, hopefully, tolerance, I'd say. I mean, if it's a non-musical, uh, description, um I actually played this past weekend with John Davis and Mike Clark up at, uh, Dave Budway's place in Nyack, and it almost seemed like people were starving to hear music. If you know what I mean, imagine yeah. you drove six or seven hours and you, you were so intent on getting there that you forgot to grab a bite to eat. You're driving by yourself. You're like, Oh, I'm just trying to get, Destination, and your blood sugar starts you know, dipping. You know you're a little dehydrated, um, mm-hmm. but I really—they were so—you know—I don't know what word to even use—just um, so happy to see something live. You know, everybody had their masks, there was a little bit of spacing with the tables, but the place was packed, and I was like, wow, that's really—you know—you, you know—you you know, you can do hundreds, if not thousands, of concerts, you can still forget that feeling you get as the artist but the crowd was just endearing on such a level. So, but given where the world is, I just hope that, you know, that the tolerance and compassion and love, hopefully we learned it like, you know, all where it was in, you know, December of 2019 that none of that's given. And hopefully, you know, we just treat each other like a little better, make a little bit more effort, you know, for how we treat everyone and just um, have a higher regard you know, for people worldwide. I mean, I was kind of brought up like that, but I mean, it's, it takes effort, you know, because it's easier to kind of not go the extra mile in terms of just how you want to treat somebody, what you say. And even, you know, things you think about that, you know, may need to be corrected or something, you know,
2: quite simply, but I mean, it's deeper than that. Why do
1: you love jazz? That's a great question. Seemed like somebody asked me that recently. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, you know it's odd, you know, I mean, not to be, like, over-philosophical, but it's almost like, why do you love your mom to dad, you know? You go, like, that's, like, so it's almost like, like I'm so passionate about it, I don't even really think about it, almost. It's kind of like breathing, you know? I mean, if I said, okay, you, you have to breathe, you have to eat, and take care, you know, so it would be in that top five, you know, in terms of, like, Mandatory essential activity.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I hear you, man. Everyone has a perception of you: your family, your friends, your fans, your students. But ultimately, you're the one that wakes up every day. You live your life. What's your perception of who you are?
1: I there's this great line, and this is not totally answering the question, but it was kind of. But there's this great line from broadcast news, William Hurt, and he goes, "What if?" Your real life exceeded your dreams, and that's what I think about every morning. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I'll never, I, I'll never forget that line, you know. And just, I tell all my students, you know, two other things beyond dream big and be great. And I said the other two are a little bit more challenging. Uh, particularly number four, but number three is be thankful. You know, I said you're, you're studying, you're getting to do something you enjoy, you know, some people live their lives. They will never have the satisfaction that you have. So you should not take it for granted. And the fourth thing I go, like, I'm still trying to learn this. <laughs> and that's like, don't complain. <laughs> and I go, yeah. like, that's the biggest waste of time you could ever have. And I go, like, again, you're in, a, you're in a digital age, you know, blogs and 24-hour cable TV and Internet, everything. I go, like, the whole world will be – Egging you on to do that, but don't do it. Try, just, I said, it's a muscle you have to develop, just like you practice piano or guitar, you know. So, uh, but the, the, the real life exceeding dreams, it's like beyond the wildest imagination as possible. You know, I mean, I could never thought it would be, you know, in my wildest dreams. Beautiful, man.
2: Leon, hey, thank you for opening up about the album, about your life and music, and good luck with. Everything and the return to the stage.
1: Oh, thank you. I look forward to talking to you on the next one, and uh, keep a lookout—you, we got a surprise coming.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Boston, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Leon for his time, music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.